Welcome to the Sum of It All Curious Schools podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague, Mark Elkhorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. And we're excited to be with you today. This season, we're exploring the book, Building a Curious School, Restore the Joy That Brought You to School by Brian Goodwin. And today we're discussing part two, curiosity in classrooms. Transcripts to our podcasts are always available for you in the episode notes on your favorite platform. So let's dive in. He opens this part with a quote from Neil deGrasse Tyson, which I adore. It says, Mm -hmm. kids are born curious about the world. What adults primarily do in the presence of kids is unwittingly thwart the curiosity of children. (laughs) Whoops. Yeah. And I love it. Not because that's what we do, but because it's just gets to the point so, so quickly. Like there's a natural curiosity, which you talked about in our last episode that we're born with this. It's inherent. And yet we somehow as adults do things that move children away from curiosity into the humdrum of life, right? And into being less curious. And he describes what we've done in education in particular in order to kind of fix this, that, that we looked up and we said, it's not working. So we have a call to reform and then we decide we want to have standards. And then if you have standards, you have to have an assessment to tell us whether or not we're doing the standards. And if we have an assessment, then we have to have an accountability system. But you know, none of this has actually changed dramatically what's happening in the classroom or what's happening to kids' curiosity. And I find that really curious. For sure, Audrey. Uh, the author does a really nice job just giving us kind of a little history lesson of this, these ways that we've attempted to fix schools. And, and Audrey, they all seem to revolve around this, this response of control. It's like we want to squeeze tighter to make sure that we can make sure that what's supposed to be happening and kids are successful, you know. And this control result, results in teaching to the test, this external motivation and effort for improvement. And The pressure, as you know, is passed on to teachers who sometimes feel that curiosity is a luxury that they don't have time to implement because they have so much content to cover. Yeah, I'm with you, Mark. Like, I definitely felt that in the classroom. And and I also concede that it's it's likely very, very unintentional. And I appreciated the author taking time to point out the ways that it's unintentional. Um, And one of the ways he said is that we don't always appreciate unusual questions and that that, that the questions that students pop up with any, I mean, he very clearly has the data and I, as a secondary teacher, I'm right there. You have an unusual question. I think you are trying to drag us off the train of what we're trying to accomplish today in class. And I'm trying to keep Mm -hmm. all of my sections in the same place and you're going to mess with me. So don't ask that question Um, (laughs) or that's a great question. You can look at that at your homework time, you know, type of thing. Um, Not connecting it to real world or a purpose is another thing. And, you know, I think that's a, that's one we've talked about in several different spaces and this idea of real world and what is real world, but the purpose, like, why is it we're learning what we're learning and the importance of that? um, I don't, I definitely didn't do enough and um, didn't understand how important it was. Um, and, and thinking about how we encourage that curiosity, we talked last time about the smiling and the head nods or the ways where we're like, I saw you buy that box in the back of the room, get back to your seat, we have homework problems to do. <laughs> um, and then just that time thing that you already mentioned, like cut to the chase. Um, I don't have time for you to explore this for yourself. So I'm gonna tell you the easiest way we understand the Pythagorean theorem instead of like, where did this come from? And why are we even, why do we care about it in the first place? So I think it's really interesting that he then shares like how we can cultivate curiosity in our classroom. He shares seven curiosity principles um, about embracing the idea of not knowing, some thoughts about questioning, student autonomy, playing outdoors even. What did you think about these principles, Mark? 
Well, Audrey, the, the one principle, or actually it was a few of the principles that dealt with questioning, those, those really jumped out at me. And I, I was kind of surprised that they did, Audrey, because I think questioning is something that, um, you know, we, we sort of go through these cycles where it's like, oh yeah, let's get back to questioning. And questioning is not a new thing for us to focus on. I mean, it's no. something we keep coming back to, but I, I just really love this context of curiosity around questioning and really sort of, it really gets to that, to the why piece of it. Um, one of the quotes on page 51 says, 80% of questions by professors during lecture were low level recall questions. And so, I mean, with that, and I don't think that's just happening in university classrooms. And you know what it's made me think about, Audrey, is like, why do we as educators ask these types of questions during a whole group setting? They, they are so prevalent and, and they're just this clear front runner in so many of our classrooms, um, but they are a curiosity killer. <laughs> they totally are, Mark. And you know, you're making me think about like even the purpose of doing whole class stuff, you know, like mm. that really goes back to that factory model. If I've have all these widgets that are kids and I right. got to move them along at the same pace together along my little conveyor belt. So I'm going to give you all something at the same time. And I really think it's a broken model that we have to rethink about. Yeah. I, I think you're onto something there. I think I, I had that vision too, as I was trying to analyze that, guess what's in my head. All I could think of is the teacher in front of the students and how that set up, I think, influences that, that the types of questions that, that are being asked. Um, and the author mentioned some strategies of thinking uh, before, like you would directly call on a particular student. And um, one of the things that he, he talks about is this idea of um, instead of posing a question to the whole class, to directly calling on, on a particular student. And one of the things that I was wondering about that as I started to say, you know, I, I'm not sure I agree with that. You know, I had to think about that a little bit. And we've talked about this before is like, you know, that's like a cold calling type of a atmosphere that you're building. But then in the next section, he does talk about the idea of fear of embarrassment that kids might have in that type of an environment. So it's really just brought that back up for me, Audrey, and, and thinking about how direct calling on students impacts their curiosity. So when we set up a culture in a classroom where it's about a teacher spouting out particular facts or information, and you know, what's the purpose of calling on students? Is it to verify that they are going to say back to you what you said <laughs> 10 minutes before? Or are we wanting to invite kids into the conversation and see what their thinking is. What are they curious about? What are they wondering about with that particular phenomenon or that subject that we're teaching? So I'm just wondering about how all of that might relate, um, relate to uh, cold calling on kids and how it might help us think and help other teachers think about what should be that, that mode of operation in classroom questioning and answering. Yeah, I appreciate that, Mark, because as you're talking about that and saying, how do we invite students? Like, I think that's really the purpose. That should be the purpose, perhaps, of that kind of cold calling is inviting students into a conversation and saying, I want to hear what you think. Um, I'm thinking about the practical nature of that, though, and that there have been times when I am lost in my thoughts around what it is we're talking about. And someone says, <laughs> Audrey, what is it you're thinking about? And I cannot, for the life of me, form a coherent sentence about what right. I was thinking about. Like, I, my thoughts are interrupted. I'm not sure where I was at. 
Um, I can't repeat where I was at if I even, you know, tried. And the embarrassment that then ensues of being flustered or not knowing mm -hmm. what to say or trying to respond in a way that's, you know, that alludes that I'm not an idiot. And I, you know, I did have something I was thinking about on the content is really difficult. So, you know, the idea of the wait time and how we give students processing time and not focusing on an average learner and thinking, I've waited my 2.7 seconds and that's mm -hmm. enough time for average, you know, this mythically average student to put a thought together. Right. Um, but really thinking about how we thoughtfully invite students into the space and do this so in a way that promotes the equity of voice in our classroom, I think is, is an important thing to consider how we achieve. Yeah, I agree completely. I, it's something we need to keep talking about and thinking about. Um, well, Audrey, with these principles, these curiosity principles, uh, which stood out to you? You know, Mark, the last two really got to me. The first ones I was like, yeah, questioning, we've talked about it and embracing the unknown. Yeah, yeah, I get it. But those last kind of hit me like as a gut punch, like, let kids follow their curiosity and then go play outdoors. And I was like, wait, what? Go play <laughs> outdoors? Um, I never had my students out playing outdoors. Um, and typical high school math teacher, I think right there, um, is that like we would not have had a reason that we could kind of, could have come up with that would have allowed us to get past all of, right? Like on a big comprehensive high school, you do not need thousands of kids outside playing outdoors all at the same time. So we're told <laughs> to stay in our rooms, right? And teach them in right? our rooms. Yeah. And yet, like if we want to foster curiosity, they talk about getting outside and mm. having things that are provocative to you than to then spark curiosity. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm doing a little bit better job of this with my own children, but I'm just thinking about the practical nature of that with, with students in a secondary space. Um, I'm also thinking about the implications of that with our professional learning with teachers and the idea of both allowing space for people to follow their curiosity. So like when that question pops into your brain where you're like, I wonder if like, how does, how does the professional learning experience allow space for you to then mm. go down that path a ways, right? Um, and then how do I provide space for people to interact with things and even maybe get outside um, to have that space of interacting with the world so that curiosity can spark. Um, I'm really challenged by those two things. I don't have answers to them, but those are definitely things I'm gonna walk away from this, this part of the book with um, to think about. Yeah, and you know what you're making me think about, Audrey, is you were mentioning professional learning and curiosity for teachers. I'm wondering if, if teachers engage in more curiosity around their own professional learning, I wonder by having that experience, they will actually value it in the sense that they'll realize that their students need that same thing. So um, just curious about that. Yeah, I, I am leaning on that one hard and thinking there's definitely a connection. And so how do we promote that for teachers in order for them to experience it, um, to change their practice? So the author then says, well, here's some tools. Um, mm -hmm. There's three tools. So lots of different things here, principles and tools and all kinds of things. But these <laughs> tools are starting to get really practical and like, what yep. can we do, right? Um, so one, they say build learning around mystery and suspense, two, agree to disagree, and three, ask questions to keep curiosity alive. Which one kind of sparked your, your interest the most? Well, that first one there about learning around, build learning around mystery and suspense, that, that really caught my attention. And the reason it did is because, Audrey, we, we really have some of this mystery built into a lot of our existing instructional models. So, you know, we have the five E model in science, which, which starts with this idea of, of getting kids curious about um, some, some kind of phenomenon. We have launch, explore, summarize that many people use in mathematics and that launch is designed to 
bring students in and, and have them thinking about something without the teacher just revealing everything right away. And, and I think it's just so interesting how we have these models in all content areas, but we still slip back into it being about us as the teacher and that we feel like we need to give this introduction um, yeah. versus the stimuli speaking for itself and letting the kids enter into it with curiosity. Um, you mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Audrey, about good intentions, this idea that, you know, we, 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 we have unintended consequences is what you said, I think. And I think in the same way with this, I think we have good intentions, but it's kind of like if you remember that Tim study that, that looked at classrooms across the world and noticed that there were similar problems being given, but in the United States, the difference was, is that the teacher jumped in and helped the students and guided them to the solution versus the students grappling and perhaps using curiosity along the way. And so um, I, I'm just thinking about that and thinking about how, um, again, that, that rush to cover content, I'm thinking is part of the reason that keeps us from letting that first E in the 5E model play out a little bit or the launch play out for the students and not be something that we we sort of set out to do but then right when we get in front of our students we take it right back um what are you yeah. thinking about that you know you're you're making a great a great point around like why is it that we end up doing these things and i and i have to believe that the idea of having control over a classroom like that's not a bad thing and yet having control means that we start to do things like take away control from students right and mm -hmm. having compassion for students and saying like, I'm not cold calling on anyone because I want you to not be embarrassed. Like all of this compassion, I don't want you to feel frustrated. So I'm gonna help you a little bit more. Um, mm -hmm. All of these, right? Like they all come from right. a good spot, I think. And yet we make a whole bunch of decisions based on that, that may mm -hmm. or may not actually be helpful to our students. And so the times mm -hmm. where we step back and we're reflective about it and saying like, what's causing there to be a lack of curiosity in my classroom or you know like i'm super pumped about this lesson but none of my students are like how come like have they gotten to experience that that joy and discovery have they really gotten to ask the question about like what's interesting about that phenomena or the the opening the opening prompt um, and how do you allow space for that um, and of course we come back to that do we have enough time we have things to cover um, and our system you know is inevitably broken but how do we kind of push up against that Right. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, Audrey, the other thing that we haven't talked much about, you know, this book is written from a generalist perspective. It's not it's not about teaching mathematics specifically. It's about teaching any content area. Um, and, you know, it was it was it's always interesting to to find math examples mm -hmm. in books like this. Um, sometimes like I don't know about you, Audrey, but sometimes mm -hmm. I kind of hold my breath. <laughs> like, yeah. And here's a math example. Like, OK, I hope it's a good one. <laughs> please, please. <laughs> I know, please. We're, we're begging you, please. Um, but, you know, you know, I was pleasantly um, surprised in the in this book. And maybe I should have been surprised. Um, the math examples and, and and the things the author includes are are pretty encouraging around, uh, the, you know, the pedagogical stance that you and I share in terms of students being um, the thinkers uh, and um, closer to our vision of what we would like to see teaching and learning mathematics. Um, uh, so um, I thought that was really interesting, Audrey. It is. I, I have to think though, that if you're gonna focus on curiosity the way that they're describing it, right? Which means you have right. a purpose for what you're learning. You're focused on student autonomy, having voice and choice. Like all of those things are gonna get closer to the math thinking 
the standard mathematical practice, like that's going to happen when you're focused in on helping your students to become curious individuals and promoting their curiosity, right? Like those things are inherent in how a mathematician acts and does their work, which is what we're trying to teach in our classroom. So I think in doing that, we're going to get math examples that are closer to what, you know, it is that you and I talk about and dreaming about for our vision for math class. For sure, Audrey, and it's made me think about like, boy, if I just started each math lesson with how am I going to make my kids curious right in the beginning, I, I think that might be uh, just a nice thing to, to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. yeah. well, the other thing that is mentioned in, in this section of the book, Audrey, is this idea of STEM. Um, and it's really interesting um, how the author shares how even with the increased emphasis in STEM in schools, that there's there's not this pipeline of students like rushing to to uh, get into college majors that uh, emphasize STEM. So um, it's kind of made me like reflect a little bit of how we kind of start to over time squeeze the curiosity out of STEM. And you know, like how do we get it back? Like recently, I heard a couple of high school kids thinking back to their summer camp days, and one of them said, um, "Yeah, we were STEM kids back then." And I, was like, and I kind of did a double take because these kids are actually in honors classes in high school. And I'm like, wait a second, you're in like honors chemistry or something and in honors mathematics. It's like, how how was it that you were STEM kids back then? I think you would be more STEM kids now. So like um, perhaps some of these these older experiences are not brimming with curiosity. Um, so that's kind of like something that we need to like think about. Right, Audrey? Uh, it's definitely something we need to think about and, you know, not to put the downer on it, but like, we're not doing it right. If our students are becoming less and less curious, like mm -hmm. they're not going to end up in a STEM field saying, I wonder what happens if, if, um, they believe that STEM is all about answering a question that someone else already has an answer to. Um, and so we, we, we have to make some significant changes in how we're dealing with STEM courses at high school. If we want to, um, have a STEM field of um of our from our for our students uh, that's that's exactly right that's exactly right well audrey you know the author has given this great backdrop of how we've arrived at this place of mm -hmm. like this deficit of curiosity but you know i think it's really important for us to get practical here um, and make sure that all of our listeners can think about like how can we influence change and wherever we are in in our our walk with how we are involved with education. Um, we don't want to slip into that argument of like feeling like, well, I don't have the power to change all of this. There's always something that we can impact. Um, so, you know, let's, let's think about how we can get practical with this. Um, one thing that came back to mind, Audrey, as I was reading was in the last episode, I was talking about that genius hour that I tried to implement in my classroom, in my fifth grade classroom. And, you know, I'm, as I was reading this, uh, particular section, I, I kept go going back on that in my head. One of the things that popped out at me is there, there's a um, vignette that's shared around Glenroy Central, a particular school that uh, implemented um, this idea of curiosity in, in an afternoon setting. And what, what really hit me there, Audrey, was that they did this every afternoon where they had curiosity at the center. And it, it kind of reminded me like, wow, me doing genius hour, maybe once a week, not really every other week and having it being sort of just this one time event in a way and something that may not have been something that my kids really were as excited about as I was. 
And the other thing it made me think about, Audrey, is like, whose curiosity what, what was I trying to stimulate? In other words, you know, was it based on like my white middle class view of what my students, my students in my classroom would be curious about? Um, because I think sometimes as teachers, we kind of take from our own like point of view of something or, you know, our own perspective. And so I think that's really important to, to consider. It is, Mark. And I think that's that probably really hits at the, at the crux being that students have to have some autonomy there, right? If we really want it to be our students' curiosity, if we really want to say there is equity, that it does matter, your brilliance matters, your curiosity matters, that there has to be more student autonomy. And I think what Glenroy Central did is fascinating. Like when you look at them as a case study and it's a really short, like two page of, 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 the, of the whole section. And if you didn't have a chance to read it yet, I would encourage you to, um, the leader starts, the administrator starts by just saying, trust me, let's mm -hmm. do this. Like, I'm mm -hmm. gonna give you the space, let's try it. And the power in that alone is huge, right? Having an administrator say like, I'm at a, I'm a school site. I have some autonomy in my school to do what we think is right. Let's go for it. Believe in this vision I have and let's go for it together. And then, like you said, it was every day. And I, I don't know if you haven't read it, you're like, how are they doing that every day? Well, they did everything else, the reading and the writing, the mathematics and the, you know, the PE, they did everything else in the morning, every day. It all still happened. But after lunch, there was this freedom of choice, which I think is super interesting. They organized it around grade bands instead of grades, which I think is another really interesting choice when you talk about like whether or not we've come up with these fictitious labels for like you're grade five because you were this many years old, right? Versus like mm -hmm. you're in this about this development stage of grade three through five and you can all learn from each other, right? Mm -hmm. That's another, I think, really interesting space of it. And, and I think like teachers spent time developing it, but it sounds like beyond the development that they worked collaboratively together, again, great opportunity for a better project and a better experience when multiple teachers have their brains in on it. Um, then students were given a lot of autonomy to kind of play within the guardrails or within the guidelines of like, of what that experience was. So I, I just think it's a fascinating case study of what could happen and how we could try on some things while still attaining to the things that we feel we're required to do at this point in time um, for test scores or for other accountability systems and things that we're in, so. Yeah, I, I love the example as well, Audrey. And I, I was just really thinking how excited to be where the things that the students did in the morning they applied them in the afternoon, in those afternoon units that they were working in by grade span. So uh, really exciting with that. Uh, another take, practical takeaway, Audrey, I noticed on page 54 was this idea of a curiosity wall. Um, and really at, in essence, it was kind of what I would think of as the parking lot poster that you might have up in the room, but there were a couple little tweaks. And I think that the thing we should think about and remind ourselves around practical parts is they don't have to be big change. We may not be able to do that last example um, at like Glenroy Central, but, but this was really, I think, a really nice example where during a particular lesson, if students had something they were curious about and it wasn't the time to bring it up for the whole group, they would just quietly go over to the poster and they would write their question down there. Um, and I really liked the, the way that that was so student-centered and it, and it valued the thinking and the curiosity a student might have during the lesson um, and still allow them to publicly state that. Um, so I thought that was such a nice tweak to sort of like the 
what I would have done in a typical parking lot chart, but that parking lot chart was, was um, kind of like controlled by the teacher, whereas this is a student initiated process. So I um, thought that was really practical. Did you notice anything else practical um, in this section, Audrey? Yeah, there was one other, speaking of small tweaks, is when they describe the experiment where they have a teacher and they give them um, a worksheet, a science worksheet and a group of students, and they say two different sets of parting words. To some teachers, they say, enjoy the worksheet. And to the other ones, they said, enjoy the science. <laughs> and they, as the experiment played out, it turns out those words mattered greatly in the experience the students then had. That the ones where they were told enjoy the worksheets this teacher's really focused on worksheet completion no matter what happened right and then the ones where they said enjoy the science that that when students curiosity was sparked and in this case it was a total you know experiment so like students were told to have sure. a spark of curiosity but the teacher allowed them to then go down that path of, of exploring mm. the curiosity and so i'm really thinking about like Parting words then are like this really small tweak that we can make in running professional learning with our teachers or in running work with our students. What are the words that we say as we send them loose into doing something, right? Like what are, what are the, what's the invitation? Is it have a good time exploring this or is it make sure you get this thing done, right? And that those, those little words that we say can really matter in terms of the curiosity that then is sparked and enjoyed and, um, and spent time learning with. Um, subsequently. Super helpful. Uh, just another reminder, language matters. Uh, really helpful. Thanks, Audrey. Thanks for joining us for this episode. In our next episode, we will chat about part three, curiosity in school communities, which is chapters seven through nine. Until then, send us a tweet with the hashtag SumMathChat. That's hashtag S-U-M-M-A-T-H-C-H-A-T with your questions and thoughts. We'll keep the conversation going there. Until then, best wishes on staying curious. Mm -hmm.